How have we gotten to a point where we can have high corporate profits when businesses can be doing so well, right. but the workers don't necessarily share in that prosperity? And I am thrilled to announce that in the second quarter of this year, the United States economy grew at the amazing rate of 4.1%. Strong numbers, you guys. Another month of strong numbers. Seven and a half years now of job creation. That is a record stretch. 223,000 net new jobs created in the month. The U.S. economy in the era of Donald Trump is riven by contradictions. Unemployment is low, markets are soaring, but income inequality is deepening as technical change and economic policy plow more and more of the nation's wealth into the hands of the already wealthy. And many households are struggling. With collective challenges like climate change largely ignored by the White House, many Americans have lost faith in the federal government's ability to address their most basic needs. But that does not mean that democracy is on hold. On the contrary, state and local governments are exhibiting a degree of autonomy reminiscent of the early 20th century, when corruption and waste fueled a unified backlash against the elite. To many, the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which delegates substantial political authority to the states, cities, and citizens, may actually be the antidote to Trumpian populism. That, at least, is the view shared by my guests today. Laura Tyson is a former chair of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors and currently the interim dean at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. And Lenny Mendoza is chairman of the New America Think Tank and senior partner emeritus at McKinsey & Company. Together, they make the case that the best defense against creeping illiberalism is to move America toward a more progressive federalism. Let's find out why. Hi, Laura, and hello, Lenny. Thanks for joining me on today's PS Editors podcast. Thank you. Morning. Great to be with you guys. Well, we're, we're very glad to have both of you, um, and we have lots to cover, so if we could, let's just dive right into the conversation. You have co-authored a number of pieces for Project Syndicate exploring issues that are specific to the American condition, issues like tax reform and democracy promotion and poverty reduction. But I want to start with an overarching theme that you've dove into, your concept of progressive federalism. So, Laura, perhaps you could start us off. How can federalism, which has historically served conservative ends in the United States, be progressive? So we wanted to emphasize that federalism itself is a a constitutional uh, right. It basically says that powers... uh, are delegated to the states, and um, there have been many periods in our uh, history, and there are many periods now, where states uh, actively use the power that they have available to them from the Constitution to pursue progress. And we believe that federalism itself is a capability, a constitutional right, if you will, for states, but how it's used... uh, it's neither democratic or republican. It's neither conservative or progressive. It's a capability, and it depends upon what the states and the voters of those states want to do with that capability. Okay, uh, but the the idea that something is nonpartisan and yet progressive carries, I think, a bit of a bit of ideological weight. Is that is that an intention, or or perhaps more uh, of a rhetorical um, flourish? <laughs> 
I think we, we define carefully the notion that progressive means progress. It's progress towards goals that are very American. Goal of democracy, the goal of prosperity, the goal of equality, the goal of liberty. Those are American goals. And what voters want is progress to achieving those goals. So we define progressive uh, as not a left or right agenda, but as a progress agenda that reflects the goals of American voters, uh, those who actually elect officials to represent them at local, state, and federal levels. So continuing on from there, a little bit more, I think, on, on the history of the concept. Back in 1932, and you quote uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in one of your pieces, he wrote that one of the happy incidents of the federal system is that individual states can serve as laboratories for policy innovation. Now, he wasn't referring to the idea that states going, go it alone. He was invoking the powers of the Tenth Amendment. But are you suggesting that states go it alone a bit more than they currently are? And maybe, Lenny, I'll throw that one to you. No, we're not saying that states should go at it alone. What we are saying is that, as Justice Brandeis said, states are a good place, and indeed not just states, but cities in some places, big cities in particular, are opportunities to experiment and learn and see what works that is close to the people. And as those learnings uh, develop, some of them are going to work. Some of them may not, but the ones that do work then can can spread and in many cases actually getting to the scale that's necessary and to learn from them at a level that makes a big difference. It is going to require the engagement of the federal government, but that even if the federal government is not actively pushing for progress, there's opportunities for states to lead that progress and then go from there as they learn what works. Mm, okay. The idea of uh, giving states, uh, you know, turning to states to help forge solutions to some of these big challenges, you know, states may have a monopoly uh, on, on some of these important good ideas uh, that need introduction in the current climate. But I wonder about money and, and whether or not states actually have the pockets to fund many of the things that they might need to do. You know, infrastructure, and I think you've written on this topic, infrastructure is a case in point, um, very expensive to do, and states don't always have the money to pay for what needs to get done. So I wonder what type of innovative solutions states are using to pay for more progressive programs uh, and what limitations they face. Sure. There obviously are a number of topics where the scale of the challenge and the delegation of responsibility to states don't go hand in hand. So national defense is one of those. <clears throat> Large-scale infrastructure investment is another. Um, and that doesn't mean, however, that there isn't an enormous amount of opportunity for states and localities to do their own experimenting and raise the resources for it themselves. So that's important, not just because there is a uh, closer proximity to the real needs of citizens at a more local or state level. But it's also true that there are big differences across the country in what the challenges are, and in some cases, therefore, what the solution should be. So examples of that include what you see going on today as different localities and states are experimenting with different levels of minimum wage or different questions around how they want to handle the safety net for things like um, Medicaid expansion. There are issues that have to do with 
economic development more broadly where some states are are choosing different structures of their tax system to invest in early education or in post-secondary education. And all of those are examples of places where you have different circumstances and different policies being enacted that we can learn from and those that do work um, start to spread to other places. I mean, do, and do any states jump out at you as being uh, more successful than others or, or specific areas that have been successful? I mean, I mentioned this infrastructure uh, example, but are, are there some places that, that in your, uh, your professional experience um, can serve as laboratories for other areas? You know, I don't think what you can do is say, here's the perfect example for everyone to follow because there is such difference across the country. A lot of states and uh, regions are experimenting with public-private partnerships for investment and infrastructure of all different kinds. I wouldn't call that privatizing as much as I would call it leveraging private capital and private sector capabilities to support infrastructure like toll roads or other things that can be funded that way. And a lot of different cities and states are experimenting with that. There are very different um, examples of people doing states doing experimenting, as I mentioned, with early education, funding that in different ways, including some in conservative places like in um, in uh, very interesting things going on in Utah in uh, with uh, broad based support for investing in early education and also is happening in very um, liberal places like some parts of uh, the Bay Area. Mm. So I, there there are, again, um, good experiments going on in a number of different places. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Laura. No, I wanted to, I wanted to underscore that um, a couple other areas because um, we've written a lot about the extent to which um, the way uh, the Affordable Care Act was structured, which was also, by the way, essentially modeled after what a state had done, uh, Massachusetts, under a Republican governor. So what you have here is you have some national policies that are very important for, from a resource point of view, Medicare and Medicaid. But, they but the Affordable Care Act has continued to create all sorts of opportunities for states to innovate in the delivery of the healthcare system. Uh, there are actually now waivers there, and Hawaii apparently has just adopted one, which really would allow a state to use the resources towards creating a single-payer system. So I, I want to emphasize that where there are substantial federal resources, there is also actually written into the laws um, room for states, if they wish, to have a huge amount of flexibility in how they deliver a service. And that, that's really important because basically how you deliver health care in a rural setting might look quite different from a heavily urban setting. And that's what states can do. So I, I, I just want to emphasize that there's a lot going on there. And also uh, in energy, where basically Lenny and I live in a state, California, which has actually been a leader in the country in uh, setting standards for appliances, say, or setting standards for fuel efficiency of cars. We, we have, we're, we're a big state. Uh, when we set these standards and they are proven to to work, others we, we can do that. It, we can show that the economic effects are positive, not negative, and other states have followed our lead. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I want to turn now to uh, another topic that you spent some time writing about, uh, the future of work. Um, you've both argued that employers must change how they train the employees of the future to meet labor market demands. Now, Laura, I wonder if, if you could, based on your uh, long focus on this topic, if you could get into and explain for us what options states have to improve the skills of workers for a future that uh, is already being dominated by artificial intelligence and automation. Right. Well, tr- truthfully, if you think about uh, education in the United States, we, Lenny and I have written about the extent to which you know this era, our era, our current era of progressive federalism is uh, very similar in spirit to the first progressive era in the United States um, in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. And it was states and local governments that actually created um, the uh, primary and secondary school systems uh, that created land-grant universities around the country. Some of the greatest universities in the United States created by states uh, committed to educating their citizens. So there's a long history here of state and local government in education and training. And what is happening now, and there are a number of states who've now come together uh, in a coalition around an, uh, an organization, Rework America. And basically what states are saying uh, is the kinds of training we offer, when we offer it, how we offer it, do we offer it uh, through the private sector, do we offer it through the public sector, through some combination, um, what does lifelong learning look like, how do we not just train but network network people who are trained to available jobs, all of those things um, many states now are thinking seriously about because frankly citizens do look to states correctly to basically be the primary uh, source of governance of training and education. And of course, they look to states and local governments to be the source of economic opportunity. That's where people experience economic opportunity or the lack thereof at the local or state level. So um, I said, there's a long history here of this being the issue of state and local government, Mm -hmm. and they're doing some really interesting things. No one has the answer because this we're going through a series of transformations in real time. But Lenny, Lenny has written about the Western Governors Association University, which is a very important model. So Lenny, why don't you say something about that? Sure. I mean, one of the important things to remember is that at every level of education from pre-K through post-secondary, the vast bulk of the funding comes from local and state funding, not the federal government. And the federal government does play an important role in things like student lending and in some levels of standard setting. But most of the innovation is happening at the state and local level. And as Laura said, there's been a history of this occurring. One of the most interesting ones that is relevant for the world in which we're operating in today was a nonprofit university that was established just about a quarter century ago by the 12 Western governors at the time called Western Governors University, which was designed to be an online delivery of uh, in-demand degrees for those who had started college but not completed it, so-called stranded workers, which is, in fact, even today, nearly the majority of people who start some post-secondary don't complete it and need the extra lifelong training that they can get to 
create the kind of skills they need to be competitive in today's labor market. And Western Governors is now the largest uh, nonprofit university in the country, just past 100,000 students. Um, it's, it's a very interesting example of what I think we're going to need more of, which is uh, lifelong learning and learning that allows you to both earn a living and learn at the same time uh, throughout your career, not just assume that you learn everything by the time you're 22 and earn for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the, the questions uh, that this conversation is kind of moving towards is the difference between lifelong learning and job training and uh, education uh, in a broad cross-disciplinary approach. You wrote about in one of your columns the need, uh, the workforce of tomorrow is going to need, quote, less seat time in traditional classrooms and more dynamic forms of workforce training. I wonder, though, if that's somehow at odds with what has long differentiated the American education system, and that's the ability to study outside one's immediate field of study. And some economists have argued that academic excellence requires a broad breadth of learning, a cross-disciplinary approach. Does this in any way uh, erode that need or that American education differentiator? I, I'm not sure that, that I with that proposition in the following sense. I mean, American education um, has always allowed, and I think that we would continue to see this, people to have a lot of uh, options available to them. We haven't, you know, many societies, what they do is at a very early age, they begin to channel people into, uh, you know, are you going to be, are, are, are you going to go into a, a collegiate uh, undergraduate program? Are you going to go into more of a job training program? Um, we allow people the opportunity, uh, really through the community college system already, to actually um, choose when they're, say, in their late teens or early 20s, a particular career path, um, and not too early before they realize who they are or want to be. So I think that strength will remain I think we obviously, as we're considering how to rebalance or reconfigure university education, say Western Governors University, we we are mindful of the need for students to basically have the opportunity of a large uh, array of courses so that they're not too narrowly uh, targeting uh, their education to a particular uh, skill set. So this is a balancing act, um, and I think we have great flexibility in the educational system to basically um, encourage people and allow people to, um, to change careers, to change focus, to not be uh, pigeonholed too early, and also to have a wide array of courses available to them. So that essentially, uh, we're not talking about uh, taking people at age 12 and saying, okay, this is a trajectory of learning that you should go on. Yeah, I mean, as a product of the American education system, uh, it, 
I had the luxury, I suppose, of uh, having a few years in university to decide which direction right. I wanted to take my life and right. then make 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 changes even after I graduated. And a lot of my European friends right. uh, can't really understand Cannot... or fathom that, that, mm -hmm. that luxury. That's right. That's right. I mean, I guess, I guess the challenge for all of us, though, is paying for it. Right. The challenge, the challenge for um, any any student for society is is paying for this. That that is that is correct. That is absolutely right. Um, I think that one of the things that um, progressive states that are looking at this problem are doing is they're actually directing some of their resources in this way. If you look historically, um, state budgets have had a lot of pressure on them on the education side because of the increasing cost of health and also of incarceration. One of the interesting things we didn't talk about that's going on around the country, again, red and blue states, is uh, prison reform or sentencing reform. Um, really recognizing that we've gotten ourselves into a situation where we have a shockingly large percentage of uh, young people caught in the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system is not, it, it has a huge problem with recidivism. It, it's highly costly. So a lot of states now are doing many interesting things, relatively small, but trying to build out to improve their, that situation, criminal justice reform. And that can free up some resources that the state has to redirect into education. So we've had a, a nice tour uh, of some of the challenges and opportunities of the, the types of progressive, progressive federalism uh, that you're envisioning. But I want to end on a practical political note, and, and I'll ask each of you to, to weigh in on this. The term itself, progressive, is contested, mm -hmm. to say the least. Uh, and some might even argue that it's toxic for many Americans. Given how deeply divided the United States is on just about everything, how could a majority of, of, of Americans be persuaded that progressive federalism is not a recipe for political stalemate? Well, I'm not sure. Look, the term, we, we try to be careful in our writing about what we mean, which is that it's not right or left. It is progress towards goals that most Americans actually uh, agree upon. So the division is ultimately not a division about basic goals like uh, democracy and its transparency, like um, justice, like uh, the pursuit of liberty. So these are basic goals uh, that Americans agree upon, and we emphasize that. Um, so that's one thing I would say about this debate. But the other thing I would say is that we also write a lot about what is happening at the local level and at the state level, but particularly at the local level, where red and blue communities um, look very different at the level of the community in the sense that they basically have a common uh, feature. And the common feature is people in the community get together to solve problems in that community. So they actually um, are pursuing uh, progressive goals, whether they call them progressive or not. There's a lot of community activism at uh, traditionally blue and traditionally red states and cities around the country to make the communities better. And if you actually look at what they're doing, they are acting in what we're calling progressive ways. If the term, if they feel uncomfortable with that term, the reality is they are 
actually pursuing progress towards achieving community goals that are held by that community. I mean, it almost sounds like you're describing conservative politics. I don't know why that would be conservative politics. Well, less, less, less federal intervention, more state control, less local, more local control. Yeah, you know, that, that's part of the, um, it depends which audience you're talking to about whether they think the term progressive federalism is left or right. If some of our liberal friends say, oh, federalism, that just means states' rights, and that was a difficult right. era going back to, we've right. settled that at, at the Supreme Court level. And, you know, the progressive term as we're using it is the progressive of Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican at the time and created the U.S. Progressive Party. And he even used the phrase that believed that wise progressivism and wise conservatism go hand in hand. And uh, it's not liberal conservative, it's progress. And if it opens up a new conversation around how do we have the same level of innovation in our mechanisms of governing ourselves that we did when Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives were pushing this forward, as Laura said, um, a little over 100 years ago, we think that's a good thing. Yeah, and I do too. I think that's a good, a fantastic place to end it. Uh, the the prospect of a, of a deepening conversation uh, and a redefinition of what we mean by progressive. Oh, I just want to say, I really think that there's, if you get beyond the division in the national debate and you get beyond the sort of uh, the attempt to create division that is coming out, uh, out of the White House right now, if you get beyond that and you go to the level of the community, you can see some amazing examples and that we, we just really wrote about this in our most recent project syndicate piece, amazing examples of of communities in very different places with very different, if you just labeled them red or blue or progressive or states' rights, you would, you would, you'd miss the reality that the people themselves are coming together to address community problems, economic, social, political, that are not being addressed uh, at the federal government level right now. And so the activism is happening and it has it doesn't have this kind of labeling problem. If you said to people you're behaving in a progressive way, they might think, what what does that even mean? I, I'm not dealing with the federal government, I'm not dealing with the national divisions. I'm solve I'm trying to work with community leaders to solve a particular problem. Um, so sometimes the naming actually uh, sort of causes people to sort of say, shall I identify with this or not? But I want to say the reality, the facts on the ground, reflect what we are calling progressive federalism. Mm, right, right. Yeah, terminology is always in, right. imprecise. Well, I like, I like ending on positive notes. Um, thank you very much for your time today on the podcast. Well, thank you. And we all were learning about Skype today. So thank you very much. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just glad it worked. Okay. I will look forward to our next conversation. Great. Bye now. That was Laura Tyson, former chair of the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors and currently the interim dean at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley, and Lenny Mendoza, chairman of the New America Think Tank and senior partner emeritus at McKinsey & Company. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno. (music) 